This is a Federal News Network podcast. A lot more accidents and near misses occur on the nation's railroads than you might realize. The Federal Railroad Administration tracks incidents using what's known as the Confidential Close Call Reporting System, or C3RS. But the Government Accountability Office finds only a handful of railroads participate, so there's a big gap in safety data. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Physical Infrastructure Issues, Elizabeth Repko. Ms. Repko, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. And first of all, how many railroads are there in the country, and how many would the Federal Railroad Administration like to have reporting to this, and how many actually do report into the system? So we took a look in our report at the number of railroads that participate in the confidential close call reporting system, and we found that only 23 of the nearly 800 railroads in the country participate. And notably, none of the largest railroads in the country, which are the freight railroads known as the Class 1 railroads, participate. I was going to ask you, it must be only the big guys that participate, but in fact, they're the ones that don't? They are the ones that don't. And when we asked the Federal Railroad Administration about participation rates, they told us that there is a lot of room to grow in the program and that increasing membership is their number one priority. Now, to the Federal Railroad Administration, they will say the program is important whether or not the Class 1 railroads participate in the program because it can be very useful to smaller or medium-sized railroads. And the larger, the non-participants told you, told the GAO, that they don't participate for what reasons? They told us several reasons. First, one of the reasons is that they told us that they have similar internal reporting systems that allow their employees to report about close calls. They're much like C3RS, so they felt that C3RS might be duplicative or burdensome or confusing to employees for them to have two systems. They also cited some concerns with protections that are in the program, and these are protections that allow employees to report information without a fear of discipline. But we also found that there were some railroads that were unaware of the program. So as part of our work, we talked to about 31 railroads. We just wanted to talk to them about the program, what they knew about it, ideas they had about it. And we found about a quarter of the people we talked to had little or no awareness of the program. So there may be some folks out there who could benefit from the program, but they're unaware of the program. And presumably the Chessie Systems and the Norfolk Southerns do know about it, but they just choose not to be in there. We spoke with all of the Class 1s, and none of the Class 1s participate, and they do choose not to participate, primarily because they cited to us having internal systems that are similar. Well, the question is, how can anyone as an industry then benefit from their internal systems? It might help them, but it sounds to me like they're worried that it will get out into the public and they'll be exoriated for lack of safety or whatever the case might be, rightly or wrongly. That seems to be what they fear happening, do you think? Well, I think that they would say that they get information from their internal systems more quickly. One of the things that happens with the C3RS program, because one of the C's is confidentiality, is that it takes some time to de-identify the reports that are received into C3RS. So the railroads that don't participate told us with their internal systems, they can more quickly react to the things that they find out, and they're able to make those safety changes more efficiently. I wonder if in de-identifying the information, would it still be possible to identify someone, some railroad, because of particular equipment they might have? Or, well, we don't have that type of XYZ coupler or this type of rail car. They do. So, haha, it's got to be them. 
When we spoke to some folks about their participation or lack thereof, they did express to us some concerns about confidentiality. We did speak with the Federal Railroad Administration, who has a third party who de-identifies the information. They told us they take de-identification very seriously and that they've never had an issue with confidentiality. Still, that is a concern for some of the railroads and the railroad employees who don't participate. We're speaking with Elizabeth Repko. She is Director of Physical Infrastructure Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And just briefly, if you would, review the number of incidents that are reported each year that do come in from the 23 railroads that do participate. Well, looking at the information that does come in, we found that over the past 20 years, a leading cause of accidents and incidents in the rail industry is human error. And human error can be a variety of things, but it also can be something that comes from a close call. And a close call can be something like speeding or missing a speed restriction. And so that's the reason why Federal Railroad Administration wants to be focused on those close calls, because they feel like if they get reporting about close calls, you can catch an incident before you get to an accident, and that's where you can be more proactive related to safety. And what are the range of things that might be reported here? Say, speeding train obviously might not make a curve, and then we've seen that happen in recent years, and that's a disaster. Or a crossing incident. I mean, sometimes there are suicides or animals on trains, and nobody can control that. Does the reporting system cover that whole range of things? And does that include incidents within rail yards where a lot of slow motion is happening of lots of trains close together? Well, for the purposes of the C3RS program, there are very specific definitions of what a close call is. Like we talked about, it's a situation that could become more serious, could become more averse, and could have a consequence to railroad safety. You gave some examples. Examples are, you know, missing a speed restriction could be something like going above the maximum speed that there is. There are certain types of events, though, that are not eligible to be reported to the C3RS program as a close call because they're reportable under other Federal Railroad Administration regulations. An example of that would be something like employee behavior involving alcohol or controlled substances. That's covered under FRA regulation. It's not covered under C3RS. What if somebody in the yard throws a switch the wrong way and two trains mash into each other? Well, if two trains were to hit each other, that would be an accident that would be reportable. If someone were to throw a switch and something didn't happen, that could be a close call. And you would want someone to report that close call so you could examine the context, understand the circumstances that were happening, and maybe figure out some corrections to that action so that it doesn't cause an accident. And getting back to the Federal Railroad Administration, if greater participation could be pulled out of the industry and 799 railroads reported instead of just 23. What public benefit do you think would accrue from that? Or what does the FRA think would be the benefit? Well, you know, the FRA told us that more participants means more reports. More reports means more safety information. More safety information means more ways that you could come up with corrective actions to stop events before they become accidents. They've certainly acknowledged that to us, and they're trying to seek broader participation in the program. We thought that they could communicate better about the information of the program, the benefits that they see now, not just to the participants of the program, but to the wider rail industry, so that those benefits could be realized on a broader basis. Is there any thought of making this database and reporting system 
operated by some sort of third party under federal auspices, but it would be reported to and not, I guess in the railroad's view, be a federal database, some sort of an industry association type of thing. And then the analytics done on the data could be done for everybody's benefit. Well, the database is operated by a third party, and there is a public database. That third party is NASA, and NASA collects and de-identifies the information. The idea is that you want to get more people to provide information to the database so that there's more rich information coming out of it. The Federal Railroad Administration will concede if we only have 23 railroads that are part of it, you're really only getting a subset of what's going on in the industry, and you may not be able to draw as broad lessons as would be advantageous to draw from the system. And by the way, is Amtrak one of the entities that does not report? Amtrak is one of the entities that does report to the system. Okay, so I guess there may be not class one, but more people ride those than ride the freight rails, although there's a few that ride the freight rails jumping on when they go by slow. But otherwise, we do know in the passenger service then what's going on. And what about regional commuter railroads? Do any of those report? There are passenger and commuter rails that report to the system, yes. And so one of the things to think about when you're thinking about the C3RS information is it's about the freight rail, yes, and close calls that could happen in a freight rail system. But like you said, it could also be beneficial for passenger or commuter rails for passengers who ride those systems. And sometimes it's all on the same tracks anyway, the freight and the commuter railroads, and mostly Amtrak uses freight tracks, except in the Northeast Corridor. And while I'm getting my mind around the fact that NASA is the database operator and not some entity in the transportation department, that's maybe for another subject. What were your main recommendations here? Well, our main recommendations were for the Federal Railroad Administration to improve the way that they communicate information from the program. We felt that they could communicate better with non-participants. And someone may wonder, why would you want to communicate with non-participants? And the reason is because studies of safety reporting system in industries such as aviation or industries like chemical processing, they suggest that the more broadly you disseminate the information, more people know, more advantageous that can be to everyone. And so we made recommendations for them to disseminate information like their success stories and disseminate more safety information. Just a blue sky question to wrap up. There seems like there could be some synergy in this whole topic of reporting incidents to the government for the benefit of the entire industry in some kind of de-identified way. I mean, CISA at Homeland Security is trying to get infrastructure entities to report cybersecurity incidents, and that's been a long struggle, 20-some years, to the federal government. It seems like there should be a incident reporting council, regardless of whether it's cybersecurity or train wrecks, for showing the benefits of this and getting private sector entities to agree that it can be helpful without destroying their businesses. Well, I would say that looking at the leading practices that we found for safety reporting systems, it's very important to have de-identified information, to offer some level of confidentiality, to analyze that information and disseminate it as broadly as you can. And that is across a variety of industries. And once again, how many incidents are reported by the railroads that do report each year? So of the 23 who participate, in total, we're seeing thousands of near misses a year. All right, so all you deer on the tracks, take notice. Elizabeth Repko is Director of Physical Infrastructure Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. 
Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hop aboard the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. 
Yeah. We, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, 
that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.